1: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Coming up, the wine, the parties, the pictures, all the things that didn't happen. Will Boris Johnson get out of this? Spoilers, probably. Meanwhile, as the price of everything rockets and the world gets more unstable, is Britain entering a new age of crisis? Special guest Peter Ricketts, former chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee and a 30-year veteran of foreign policy, joins us to work out where Britain goes from here. And... Should we stop taking newspaper front pages so seriously? All that and more in this week's bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. It's a big week here at Podmasters Towers, home of The Bunker and oh God, what now? Our new podcast, Origin Story, has gone straight to number one in the Apple Podcast charts. That's the main chart, the big one, not just news and politics. So when you've finished enjoying this week's podcast, do check out Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky on Origin Story, digging into the real stories behind the most misunderstood and misrepresented ideas in politics. The first one is on McCarthyism, and it's very good. Now let's meet today's panel. Welcome back to the Atlantic staff writer Yasmin Sirhan. Hello, Yasmin. How are you?
2: Hello, I'm good, thank you.
1: So Australia's just had its federal election over the weekend, with the centre-left Labor Party winning power after nine years in opposition. Give us your quick take on this. This is good for the planet, at basis, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I'd say it's pretty good. Um, Australia was never really known as kind of being among the leading countries when it came to climate change. Uh, This is a pretty fossil fuel (laughs) heavy country, uh, big on coal. And its leader, or I guess its former prime minister now, Scott Morrison, was never particularly, uh, let's say, strong when it comes to to climate policy. In fact, Australia has kind of been known as the global laggard when it came to the 2050 climate targets and things like that. But the new prime minister, Anthony Albanese, pledged to make Australia a renewable energy superpower. Um, Climate change was a pretty big issue in this election, so much so that it was seen, at least from what I've gathered reading the reports from Down Under, as um, one of the main reasons that he lost support, especially from the so-called teal independents. So these are independent candidates who represent a mix of the sort of blue liberal conservative fiscal policies Mm. plus green climate policies. So blue, green, teal. I think that's how, yeah, exactly. The voting, I think, is still being counted, last I checked. But if this election ends up being a hung parliament, which I think our British listeners should be well familiar with, since it's what Theresa May was stuck with for quite a while, um, the Greens and the independents could have, I think, a bigger role in this government. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's interesting to see Scott Morrison get a, a bit of a hammering, particularly in Queensland, the state that got him over the line in 2019, voting so heavily for the Greens that, that they call it Greensland, which we never thought we would see. Also with us is comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. Speaking of broadcasting, these pictures of Johnson drinking <laughs> mm-hmm. in the, the, the pictures that have arrived just five minutes ahead of the Sue Gray report. What did you think?
3: Uh, so on the one hand, I, I both was and wasn't surprised. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. In that I obviously wasn't surprised that this was happening or that it has been happening because the guy routinely lies to mm-hmm. Parliament very openly and blatantly Mm. Uh, so it's not exactly surprising like it's when when he said and i can assure you that there were no parties and stuff you're like oh right so there were seven there definitely definitely were
1: parties
3: Uh, right so that's not surprising it's the existence of the photographs that gets me every time because it's i just can't imagine the thought process that goes into being like drafting a law Putting that law into place, breaking said law, and being like, oh, sorry. Has anyone? We don't forget to photograph me doing we, it. We've got the we've got the photographer coming in. We're like, mm. Well, no, party don't get started until Bill the Pap gets over here. Right? That is the thing that's continuously breathtaking. I don't know why you would bring someone along with the express job of photographically
1: documenting your crime. How do you think these pictures got out on a couple of days after the Prime Minister basically dropped a load of junior civil servants under the bus? Well, exactly. That's the thing.
3: You know, these are parties. I don't know whether it's the case for this specific image, but certainly what we've heard is that loads of people at the events have been fined. But Johnson has himself Escaped any mm. further fines as though there's some sort of like force field of anti party just around his body. Mm. The whole room was having a the... party,
1: but he wasn't. He was in a non party bubble, like with a circle around the floor. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you can. Very readily
3: imagine that if that is a position that your employer is putting you in because you have been fined and they, when they were in exactly the same room, doing exactly the same thing in a really, you know, the umpteenth example of one rule for them, Mm. one rule for everyone else, then, of course, I, I, I find it not particularly surprising that someone would be on the blower to Paul Brand at ITV News saying, here are the photos. What I find surprising is why do you take photos in the first first place?
1: Well, we'll be returning to this. It is a developing story, as they say. Pictures only appeared about half an hour before we started recording. Our special guest today is a heavy hitter. Peter Ricketts was Britain's former national security advisor, ambassador to France, and now a member of the House of Lords. His book, Hard Choices, The Making and Unmaking of Global Britain, is out now. Uh, Welcome to The Bunker, Peter. How are you?
4: Thank you very well. Very well indeed, really. Everything that's going on in the world, um Yes, you're,
1: fine. you're in an oasis of calm, and um, we're going to be talking about the book in some detail later uh, about Britain's new place in the world, about the way that the Ukraine war has overturned everything. But a very immediate concern, kind of in your wheelhouse, is the Northern Ireland Protocol and a potential trade war with the EU. Now, your book covers a lot about Britain's complicated relationship with Europe and and uh, unwise disengagement from it. Apart from not getting into this situation in the first place, how would a government that planned? be dealing with the Northern Ireland Protocol issue?
4: Well, certainly not by suggesting that they were going to denounce it and break international law in the middle of a major war in Europe. I mean, that is absolutely the worst possible time to be going back into a big row with the EU. I mean, a sensible government, in my view, would be working through the mechanisms that are in the treaty to arbitrate, uh, to negotiate, to find a solution. I think if Britain came with the right spirit to the table of accepting that some compromises were going to have to be made, expecting that the EU would make some as well, then a negotiation could produce an outcome. I think they're not unreasonable on the other side of the table. But when Britain threatens to kick the table over, there's not a lot of point in putting more cards on the table. You said a
1: mouthful there when it was at, when if Britain were to uh, approach it in the right spirit. But I mean, it's not really the pu- the, the purpose of the Northern Ireland Protocol is uh, row is not really to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol. It appears it is to be seen to be having a row with Europe for political reasons.
4: Well, that's what I fear. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder actually whether this famous draft law will ever get passed. I mean, when it gets to the House of Lords, I promise you it will be shredded by the legal eagles there. Uh, and I think a lot of it is the gesture of slapping um, a bill on the table and saying to the EU, unless you make major concessions, you know, we're going to go crazy. The EU will not be impressed by that at all. The The madman strategy has not worked with them in the past. I think they will calculate that this is probably a bluff uh, and that the economic damage of getting into a trade war with the EU while we've got a real war going on next door, you know, it means that it actually won't happen. They'll call the bluff. And then once again Britain will lose reputation as a serious country. And I can't stress enough how much ground we've lost in European capitals. People are just looking at us and saying, what's happened to you guys? You know, you used to be pragmatic, commonsensical Brits. You know, what has happened? And this will just make matters worse if they continue to push down this road.
1: Joe Biden is on tour in Japan and has uh, stated in the past couple of days that the US would defend Taiwan militarily if China were invaded. This is quite a big step, isn't it, to make that statement boldly and in the open?
4: Yes. And the Americans have been very ambiguous over Taiwan for 40, 50 years, and that has worked pretty well with the Chinese. Uh, Joe Biden has come out of that ambiguity pretty clearly. But actually, I think the Chinese will have been watching very carefully what's been happening over Ukraine I think they'll have been surprised by how strong the Western sanctions have been on Russia. And they will be calculating, if that happened to us, it would be a pretty serious hit to the Chinese economy if they were disconnected from the world financial system, as we've done with Russia. And also, they'll be thinking, hang on, um, these Ukrainians, you know, they were supposed to lose in the first two or three days to our friends, the Russians. And something has gone seriously wrong here, and perhaps invading a country where uh, people will be fighting you know, for their homes to protect their families with their backs to the wall. Perhaps trying to invade a country like that isn't such a great idea. And perhaps we'd better recalculate the, the pros and cons of going up the beaches in Taiwan. I think the Ukraine war has meant a war in Taiwan has become much less likely, at least for the time being.
1: Last week, UK inflation hit 9%, its highest level in over 40 years. Alongside soaring prices, we've got an impending recession, we've got war in Europe, teacher shortages in schools, staff shortages elsewhere, and a looming mental health crisis, plus rising obesity rates. Meanwhile, the government is simply circling the wagons on parties. After the age of austerity, are we entering a new and permanent age of crisis? Ah, here this is kind of coming in at us from all angles. Pretty much everything is closing in. The real distress in the cost of living crisis is compounded by the fact that nobody in government seems to care enough to actually do something about it. And the the rise in inflation is hitting the poorest households noticeably more than than the richest. What sort of mirror is this holding up to? Britain as well, image of ourselves, that we can let crises like this develop and then simply do nothing about them? Well, I think in part, you know,
3: this country has had now a dozen years of government sort of intentionally making life worse for a lot of people, uh, particularly those who are most reliant on the state. Of course, like it is affecting the poorest the hardest it, it reminds me of this uh thing of the terry pratchett you know the sam vines boots theory uh of poverty which is that you know a, a very good pair of boots will cost a certain amount mm. and last you for years and years whereas if you can't afford that and you have to buy cheaper boots you end up spending more in the mm. long run and still always having wet feet uh and that's the sort of uh, horrific trap of it and i suppose what's really I think quite upsetting about it is the fact that what a government are doing like tiny, tiny things you know, like fiddling around the margins it seems, and then doing this sort of self-congratulatory pat on the back situation of like oh, isn't it nice that we are doing this like smallest amount, but it's like trying to bail out a swimming pool with a thimble uh, or something, That that's what they're apparently expecting like a great deal of gratitude for, this really minimal uh, stuff, when
1: people are going to be in a hell of a lot of trouble unless there is some really significant action taken but there's one very significant clear thing in plain sight at the moment which is the windfall tax on energy companies it's politically very very popular uh, whitehall research indicates that 80 percent of people are in favor even rishi sunak wants it boris johnson just doesn't seem to want it. and there's, there's a very very easy win right there surely this can't just be vetoed by the conservative right wing forever So the windfall tax thing, which of course,
3: yes, is not going to be a panacea, even if it is put into place. So I think need to bear that in mind. But what really distresses me about that is my thinking, I can't come up with any reason why it's not being done, because even the companies are saying that we're making money hand over fist and don't even know what to do with it. It's such an obvious Example of a windfall and unexpected profit, that the only reason I can think that the government wouldn't be doing it is just, quite a, well, that's Labour's idea. Mm-hmm. That's the opposition's idea, and therefore it would be handing the opposition a win. And I think that it's really troubling how sort of far away from the actual life of people in this country you have to be in order to think that it's more important that you don't seem to have made a concession against the other guys, because, mm. oh yeah, maybe the other guys have a point, and think that that's more important than being able
1: actually to help people. It's kind of, you would imagine, not the best political idea when you've just won over a sizable chunk of, uh, you know, people in the north of England, people of working class backgrounds. The very first moment when you're asked to help them, you say no. It does not really seem political acumen at its best. And there's a lot of... Uh, Like, viewed
3: of this goes back to the sort of patting themselves on the back uh, Mm -hmm. sort of thing, because the government will be very happy to mention, well, there was all of this support that we gave during covid and because that is the case like a large amount of support was given uh, during the pandemic and something like furlough which showed that apparently the treasury could create a yeah. system that helped people in very extreme circumstances reasonably quickly and reasonably efficiently and effectively and now you're like uh, they say like oh well it was good that we did all of that everything and, and people could quite reasonably be like what, and you can't do anything now. And this is this is now something that's entirely beyond the wit of man, even though it was clear that when really
1: important things were on the line, that something could be done in the past. Yasmin, the kind of amount of government energy directed towards the party stuff that we were just mentioning, <laughs> uh, it stands in stark contrast to the amount of energy being put into solving these or at least working to solve these multiple crises. The Sue Gray Report is coming out this week as everyone knows of the photos have landed just before we started recording. What sort of a look is it for the government to be devoting all of its political energy and all of its political resources into basically exculpating the prime minister of something we can see he all did.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty strange to to think that the Tories clearly have bigger problems on their hands. Everything that you and I here just described, cost of living and stuff like that. It was hard, I think, even a few weeks ago to think, or perhaps longer than that, to think that anything could really obscure party game. And it was just the biggest thing. I mean, I will say before the photos came out, I did think after hearing that the Met had included um, their investigation and that Johnson should only be get would only be getting uh, the one fine. I did think, oh, you know, he's clearly he's done it again. He's he's managed to save himself. And that's largely because, you know, the the fine in question had to do with a birthday party, which Mm -hmm. I think as far as it concerns members of his own party, perhaps they'd be a bit more sympathetic to the idea that the prime minister paused his day to blow out a candle on a birthday cake. But I think what is clear is that, you know, so when it it comes to the fines, it seems that that was kind of limited damage. I think what remains to be seen and what I'll be interested to see is uh, the full findings of Sue Gray's report, which, as you said, is expected to come this week. I think that is going to draw bigger questions about sort of the culture in Downing Street and frankly, you know, Boris Johnson's leadership. And I think insofar as it could sway Tory MPs to take a position, and at the end of the day, it will take them <laughs> to yeah. to take a take a position or, or take action. Um, I, th- I think that's where we're going to see potential movement. And I think that's why we're starting to see some attacks on Sue Gray herself.
1: Yeah, there was a lot – well, before the pictures landed, there was a lot of briefing against her. Sue Gray is supposed to be neutral, but she's been busy playing politics and enjoying the limelight a little too much. The male quotes some inside. I mean, the most blatant brief you can imagine. And kind of rather base and sexist as well.
2: Very much so. But also it occurred to me when I read that, that I don't actually know what Sue Gray looks like. Like, I don't think in the course of reading about the Mm. report, I haven't actually seen too many photos of her. I mean, maybe I haven't. They've slipped my mind. But for someone who's apparently seeking the limelight, she's not someone who's been out there like talking a lot. You know, she's an independent civil servant who's just doing her job, a job that's been asked of her. So the fact that the government would therefore seek to try and undermine her and sort of undermine her character through briefings or anything like that, it's just a really bad look. It also, I think, suggests that they're scared. Of the findings, so yeah, I mean, I, I think which, if anything, is going to cause everyone to want to to read the full. I mean, we've been waiting for this report for so long. It's weird to think that it's been however many months. Just you know, we'll wait for the we'll wait for the full report. We'll wait for the full report. We'll wait for the outcome of of the investigation. So it feels like it's all kind of coming to a head, but it's still unclear to me whether. It's actually going to result in anything consequential for Johnson. I think the photos might change it, but even then, as Ahira said before, not entirely surprising that we've seen photographic evidence Hmm. of what we've known to have taken place, which is parties.
1: Peter Ricketts, as as part of the government's uh, concerted campaign to work on things that are not directly related to the uh, cost of living crisis... They recently announced plans to cut 91 civil service jobs, almost 20% of the workforce. Jacob Rees-Mogg has mentioned pausing the civil service fast stream for graduates and you had a long career in civil service. How does this look to you because it looks to an, outs- to an outsider like me it looks like find something and cut 20% off it is the fast answer.
4: Yes, but I think we've seen in the Partygate scandal as well that those who were going to carry the blame for this going to be the uh, civil servants uh, when the final report comes in. I'm quite sure they've been lined up as the scapegoats here. And I think it's quite convenient for the government to point to the fact that the civil service has grown during the pandemic. I mean, that's hardly surprising given that the government was effectively running the entire economy during the pandemic uh, and that it's time to find some savings. Um, The risk, of course, is that most of those people are still doing very important jobs as the economy staggers back to life after the pandemic. Uh, and the idea you can easily cut civil service jobs without any damage to what the government is doing, I think is a myth. Uh, it will also cause morale around the civil service to plummet further. So I am sure that there could be a sensible pruning program of some of those people who were taken on in kind of crisis circumstances during the COVID uh, period uh, to, to reduce a bit. But it does, as you say, look like a way of changing the subject from Um, a very embarrassing party gate, finding some other people to um, put in the headlines, always popular uh, with the Tory right to cut civil service.
1: Do you think that people in the outside world, the general voter, really understands the extent of what the civil service does for Britain, particularly in the light of 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 the pandemic?
4: No, I'm sure they don't, because civil servants are mostly very low-key and out of the limelight, and and they do jobs that people aren't aware of. Um, But when people are getting payments and, uh, you know, allowances, and the government has kept the trains running, for example, transport running through the pandemic, took over large numbers of businesses that risk failing, all of that requires civil servants. And it's going to take time to unwind that and reduce the numbers again. So people don't understand, no, but civil servants, I can promise people are doing, you know, their very best in these difficult circumstances. And they're not helped by a lack of political leadership, starting in number 10. And there's one person that creates the culture in number 10, and that's the prime minister. Um, and so if civil servants get fired because of the Sue Gray report, that is going to further knock the bottom out of confidence among civil servants working around ministers. Peter, just in closing
1: on this, I mean, with so many things closing in on us, is it too much to imagine that we're going to be entering into a a kind of 1970s period
4: of permanent crisis? I think in a way we're in a worse period than the 1970s. There are more simultaneous crises going on because uh, we've been talking about the UK. But if you look into the wider world, we've got an energy crisis. We've got a massive food crisis looming with the ports from Ukraine blocked and the risk of famine in Africa. Um, And I'll tell you one other possibility, we might have President Trump back in the White House in 2024. So I think the world is beset with a whole series of different crises, and governments in those situations don't make plans. They muddle. They get through day by day, hour by hour, and sort of hope that things will get better. I think we need to face the fact we've got a very, very rocky few years ahead. People are going to have to get used to levels of inflation uh, that they haven't known for 30 years. Um, at a time when wages aren't rising. So we may find we've got another wave of strikes hitting the country. And I think we're in for a pretty difficult period.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory...
1: In a 40-year diplomatic career, Peter Ricketts was Britain's first national security advisor between 2010 and 2012. He was also a permanent representative to NATO for three years. And in his final posting, he was the UK's ambassador to France. He now sits in the House of Lords and has just published the book Hard Choices, The Making and Unmaking of Global Britain. Peter, the sense from the book is that we've never really grasped, amongst many other things, we've never really grasped the scale of what Brexit meant uh, in detaching ourselves from one group of allies and not really bringing ourselves closer to the United States. And also, we've never really lost the attachment to short-term policymaking, as you would just say, muddling through from a small pool of, you know, quite similar politicians. When you look at this from, you know, try and look at it from a distance, it looks rather like a kind of Suez moment of diminution that we haven't kind of realised we've brought on ourselves. Is, is it too much to say that that's the case?
4: No, I think that's about right, actually. I mean, of course, Brexit was about what people didn't want. Uh, and there was no clear plan or manifesto for what a post-Brexit Britain would be like. And we've never taken the time as a sort of general national debate to work out what kind of country do we want to be? So we're living at the moment in a dream world, frankly, um, sort of sepia-tinged nostalgia about when Britain was a great power, you know, with the world's greatest navy, and now we have a new aircraft carrier we send to the Indo-Pacific. But we have not really hoisted in what this has done to Britain. Uh, it's diminished our reputation. Uh, it's knocked our economy. Uh, and it's meant that at a time when the world is fracturing into different spheres, an American sphere, a Chinese sphere, and war in Europe, Britain has paddled out into this very, very choppy sea in a rather small boat uh, and is trying to find a new direction. And I don't think there's any direction at the moment. When the government put out their strategy plans, as they did last year in the integrated review, it's full of bold ambitions and brave words, but there are no real choices. The choices are being made for us by others, including by Vladimir Putin uh, and by what the EU decide to do and the Americans. And so we are, I think, not yet, we haven't yet got our heads round what this has meant and what kind of Britain we want to see in the future. And I'd really like to see some debate about that.
1: I can remember my parents saying, when they experienced Suez so as as kind of teenagers or in their early 20s, that you knew something had happened immediately. The entire country felt like kind of gut punch, that for the first time in, in their lives, we'd failed at a big thing that we decided we were going to do and the world wouldn't play. There hasn't been that sense of a gut punch this time, that it's been more of a slow collapse or a slow retreat of our power. Are we deluding ourselves?
4: Yes, there's a great deal of delusion around. I don't think the Brexiteer um, generation in politics and perhaps in the wider country will ever actually accept that this has been a massive mistake, which has weakened the country. They will always go on believing whatever the evidence that it was much better to have our independence, even if it's meant we've got a weaker economy, we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got new barriers with our trading partners and all the rest. And unless you can have some honesty in the debate, uh, if one side is deluding themselves about where Britain stands in the world, then you know, you've got no prospect, I think, of clearing your minds. Actually, I think this is a bigger problem than Suez. Suez, after all, after a couple of years, uh, Macmillan was re-elected. And we got into, you've never had it so good and so on. So I think this is a bigger setback. It's going to take longer for Britain to find a new balance uh, outside the EU. I mean, I devoutly hope in due course that we will at least negotiate a constructive grown-up relationship with this major economic set of countries just across the channel. But for the moment, that's very ideological. The Americans have many, many other priorities than us at the moment, not least in making sure that we don't kick over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And so we are in a period uh, where we are still a long way from having a settled idea of what kind of country wants to be and what real weight we have in the world, which is, I'm afraid, less than many people think, although still important.
1: One thing that really surprised me in the book was finding out about Cameron's National Security Council and how different it was from previous security arrangements, dealing with the, the then enormous threat of Islamist terrorism. Tell us how different that approach was and why, why it was revolutionary.
4: Yes, and I'm, because I was David Cameron's first national security advisor, you'll have to aim off for a bit of bias, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think the insight they had, the Tories, when they arrived in 2010, was that this idea of national security now, now goes so wide Um, It's not just about a classic war and peace and foreign policy, but it takes in energy policy and climate change and public health and terrorism, all the rest of it. You needed a group around Whitehall, which was much wider than the the kind of classic um, hard power uh, classified subjects, issues that, that we had before. And so they set up this National Security Council, which is basically all the government departments dealing with that very wide range of issues. So you can actually look across the piece and decide what your priorities are going to be, where you're going to put your resources. The other thing which was interesting was that the uh, intelligence guys, the heads of the intelligence agencies, um, MI6 and MI5 and and GCHQ, they were at the table as well. So for the first time, the ministers could get their eyes on the spooks and the spooks on the ministers. um, And so the intelligence could be questioned. uh, Ministers could say, you know, how good is that report? Can we trust it? Um, what, else, what else ought we to be looking for? Go out and find us information on X, Y, and Z. And I think that was a good thing because we've got a very good intelligence community, but they were always kept a long way from ministers in a sort of rather dark, dark room in the corner. And now they are not making policy, but they are there when policy is being made and able to contribute to it. I think that's all a good thing. I was slightly worried and saddened to hear that Boris Johnson doesn't seem to be making much use of this National Security Council over the last couple of years. It is a really valuable instrument to have to try and pull things together. And if possible, peer ahead a bit through the through the fog of immediate crisis towards where we might be wanting to go.
1: Um, you finished the book, obviously, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's a strong sense throughout the book that something really bad is coming. And then the really bad thing is happening right now while I'm reading it. We're seeing years of history happening in, in, in weeks. It's Finland and Sweden are, are are about to join NATO if they're if they're able to. How significant is this? Up? You know, is it really the big turning point in European history that we're told? It is one of those big turning points.
4: Yes, Finland and Sweden. I mean, they were proud neutral countries uh, for decades. We worked very closely with them when I was ambassador in NATO. They fought with us in Afghanistan. You know, they were serious defense countries. But I never imagined that they would want to join NATO. That's Putin's doing. Putin is pulling NATO towards Russia's boundaries, exactly what he didn't want. Germany has made an enormous shift just in a few weeks, really, in its security policy from having been essentially pacifist, um, dealing with the economic stuff, leaving the hard power to the Brits and the Americans and the French. Now they are going to be spending serious money in updating their armed forces. And my goodness, they need it. Uh, and in shifting their approach to recognize that they, too, are a major country that has to be able to deploy hard power to defend itself. So this is a, a very much a changed Europe because of Putin. Um, and you know I think it's one that can work well with the Americans in the decades to come. So I think with hindsight, it will look like, for example, 1989, the end of the Cold War, one of those turning point moments. Nothing will be quite the same afterwards as it was before this Ukraine war.
1: As someone who was formerly Britain's national security adviser, can you tell us, do you have an idea of what role intelligence played in Ukraine? I mean, Joe Biden was was very, very clear that he was convinced that something was going to happen here and that Putin was going to go ahead with what he threatened. Did the intelligence community here spot that accurately?
4: Yes, I think they did. I mean, if you think back to 2003 and the war in Iraq, famously, the British and American intelligence was wrong on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq um and you know they lost a lot of reputation for that this time from quite early on I mean from the beginning of the year really um the british and american intelligence community was saying there is a war coming this is going to happen we're not just seeing troops massing on the borders of ukraine we think that the russians really are going to go in and others around europe were saying no or well, we're not so sure this is just really a show of force and it won't happen so i think this time Um, Western intelligence got it right, and the politicians decided to put it out there. So you and I and everyone could actually hear these warnings. They weren't just kept on highly classified bits of paper in Whitehall. Ministers broadcast what they were hearing from the intelligence community to try to make Putin's life more difficult and upset his plans and, and call him out before he acted. Didn't stop him, but I think it was a pretty effective technique, and I think it's in a way... Uh, restored the reputation of um, Anglo-Saxon intelligence, as it were, for getting this one right. And it was a big call for them.
1: The paperback edition of your book is called Hard Choices, The Making and Unmaking of Global Britain. But the hardback that I've got here is called Hard Choices, What Britain Does Next. Is Britain master of what it does next, do you think? Or are we going to be chevied along by circumstance?
4: We absolutely are not uh, master of it. Our fate is going to be decided largely by others, more powerful political players, more powerful economic blocks. But we do have some national decisions to make. And one of them is, are we going to try to pretend we're still an exceptionalist power able to make the weather in a way we were in the first half of the 20th century? Or are we going to knuckle down and accept we are a middle-sized, influential player that is at its best when it works with friends and allies, with NATO, with the G7, Yes, with the Australians and Japanese, but also with the Europeans. And I think that we've always been effective when we've been at the center of a network, um, coming up with ideas, persuading others, and um, delivering through our, our collective um, network of friends around the world. And so I'd like Britain to get away from this idea we are somehow something special and exceptional uh, and get back to what has made us effective in the past. That's one of the choices we have to make.
1: Finally, the newspapers often drive us mad. But why do we let them? Case in point, after 12 days of the Mail and the Express hammering the Keir Starmer beer story, the BBC finally caved and started reporting on it, despite it having been covered already and debunked over a year previously. Therefore, a non-story became Beergate. Print newspaper sales, however, have plummeted. From 21.2 million in January 2000 to just 7.4 million in February 2020, and that was before the pandemic stopped people commuting. All of this did happen in the age of the growth of mass internet and smartphones. The BBC News website now has a monthly audience of 38.7 million, followed closely by The Sun on 27.7 million. But online and print are very different beasts with very different content. Somehow, though, we are still enthralled to front page culture with BBC and Sky News reviewing the papers every single night as if nothing has changed and mass circulation was still a thing. Do we treat the newspaper front page as if it still has a power it no longer possesses? I hear, I want to ask you, I mean, truly memorable front pages or the, or the really infamous ones sometimes, they're pretty thin on the ground now. The ones that I could remember from the past decade were Enemies of the People in the Mail, over and out on the front of the Guardian after the uh, Brexit referendum, The Mirror... What have they done when Trump won? What stands out for you? Or or is the great front page kind of a thing of the 70s and the 80s? Well, I think that I I really
3: enjoyed uh, the front page of the Mail over the course of the last few weeks uh, when we went from, you know, the entire nation having lost all sense of proportion and don't they know there's a war on when people were trying to uh, mention that perhaps it was not ideal to have a prime minister who was doing crimes and then following it up by... Probably about a fortnight of insisting that uh, Keir Starmer uh, just eating uh, was <laughs> uh, sort of something that uh, no right-minded person uh, could view without thinking that Mr. Starmer should immediately be sent to hell. Um,
1: so that that's been a, that's been pretty fun. I mean, do we pay too much attention to that? That you know, imagine that the front page is a thing that it was in the 1950s when it was the dominant media. I don't necessarily think that too much credence is paid to it because I think that
3: there's a sort of ambientness to Mm. the front page of newspapers, right? Like regardless of whether you're buying a print paper yourself, if you're just going into Sainsbury's to pick up whatever, like you are going to see them Mm. uh, there. So in that moment, it does provide like a very brief snapshot to us collectively as a society. All right, this is what we're thinking about. Mm. Uh, at the mo- at this particular moment in
1: time. But that's the question. Is it what we are thinking about? Because this is a government that's very adept at using a front page to launder an opinion into the public sphere so that at a certain point, the Today programme thinks it's got to t- cover it because people are talking about it. Why are people talking about it? Because it's been pushed into the public square mm. by the yeah. Telegraph or the Mail. Oh, certainly. Like, uh,
3: well... Quote, unquote, Beergate is, mm. as you say, a, a fantastic prime example uh, of that, of uh, becoming the thing that everyone's talked about because you've been yelling about it for two weeks in mm. front of everyone's faces and just won't stop. Thank and you very much, Mr. Hodges. We're guilty uh, of on it
1: the, on the podcast as well. We get sucked
3: into this. Yeah. Yes, this is true. Uh, but, you know, I, I suppose it depends the extent to which you believe that newspapers are either the makers of public opinion or uh, responsive to it and following it. And in some cases, yes of course, they are confecting outrage out of nothing. And in other instances I think that it is the case that the business models of these organisations are reliant on being able to hold a finger up in the air and or to the pulse or whatever the correct uh, mm. metaphor uh, is and say, right, this is what people are thinking now uh, and it, it depends
1: where the responsiveness goes. Yasmin, it's often sort of seems like the the front page as a new role, different from what it had in the days of mass print, which is it's just like a JPEG shareable now. Look what the hell they've done today. Look what they're saying. It's kind of, you know, less designed to shift the print product and more designed to shift the brand and then bring you to the website.
2: Well, it's kind of weird. I think about front pages a little differently. And I guess when I think about the front page, I'm, I'm thinking less about the tabloidy sort of spectacle mm-hmm. type of front page that I think you kind of see more common in, in this country versus like the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, f- from a journalistic perspective, I feel like the front page is the sort of the, the news outlet's way of signaling to its readers what is the biggest story, mm. what they should be paying attention to. Um, you, you, you both are absolutely right in the sense that there is a bit of responsiveness in the sense that, you know, if there's a big story that everyone's talking about, typically you're going to find it somewhere on the front page, even if it is just kind of a small mm. bit, like kind of square in the center. But I think for, for journalists – and, and it is a lot of power, right, to dictate what people see when they're walking into the shop. And it's kind of the first thing that they see on the front page. I mean, there's there's decision-making and editorializing and, mm-hmm. and ultimately bias that goes into what is put on page one or A1 versus what is put on, you know, the fifth or sixth page. But I think, you know, a lot of the importance of the front page, I think even if, like, I myself am a digital news consumer, I don't think I place as much importance on, like, what stories on the front page to, like, dictate what I read. Mm-hmm. But I think journalists generally, like, I have a lot of newspaper journalists Colleagues who, you know, it's quite tradition that they get their first A1 front page story framed. Yeah. It's like a thing. So I think it's more important for journalists nowadays than it is. But you're right that it does drive conversation and drive opinion.
1: Well, tomorrow's front page is going to be really interesting because it's going to be impossible for certain papers to pretend that ITV hasn't got this incredible scoop <laughs> of these incredible pictures. It is, yeah. so, there are, moments come when you just can't avoid it. You just can't pretend. So it'll be fascinating to see what they actually do because they won't be leading the conversation. That, that They'll be following it. I mean, you're a magazines person. The Atlantic is a, a very erudite and wonderful uh, magazine. I mean, do you find that you know you're talking to a completely different audience to a, a a mass newspaper audience do you find that you have to reflect or that you can lead in terms of opinion and ideas
2: i think yeah i mean people go to magazines for different things right you know mm. i'm uh, the atlantic is not a place where you typically find that kind of big scoopy splash i mean i would be remiss if i didn't mention my editor <laughs> jeffrey goldberg's uh, kind of seismic scoop from a couple of years ago about trump calling uh american the fallen americans kind of uh, suckers and losers, I think yeah. was, was the quote. But but yeah, no, typically you go to, to a magazine like The Atlantic to read something like my colleague Tom McTague's profile of Boris Johnson. Hmm. It offers an insight into, you know, important people and our leaders, uh, but in different ways, often through extensive interviews. Um, so you get these like really interesting snippets and like kind of, you know, really newsworthy stuff, but not in that sort of package of being like this explosive, this is what's hmm. happened, this sort of big bombshell type thing. But it
1: will often be gutted by those exact outlets that will go. Yeah. That will pull out the angle and go incredible, incredible. They told the Atlantic in very, very quiet. You know, six paragraphs down, <laughs> mentioning that uh, they were speaking to Yasmin Sahan. So you know, in a way, you're also part of that ecosystem.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of unavoidable, an right? And and at the end of the day, I think you know those big stories are going to be the ones that, yeah, that that drive things in in the way that sometimes kind of the longer ones can.
1: Peter, I mean, you've worked all over the world. The British press is often described as um, vibrant and buccaneering, which can often be a euphemism for uh, some terrible things that it does. <laughs> and we are we are both yeah. fond of it and infuriated by it. You know, how do you see British newspaper and British front page culture differing from, say, you're posting in France?
4: I mean, first of all, listening to your conversation, I think you're all massively overestimating the impact of newspapers now. I mean, I know we're all in the sort of Westminster Whitehall bubble. But I, I don't think that people are really consuming their news from newspapers anymore. Uh, certainly anyone below about 50, I think they're consuming it from multiple social media channels and, uh, and everything else, all in digital. When I do see people picking up newspapers, particularly tabloids on the, on the tube, they don't look at the front page. They look at the back page. Um, they go straight to the football. And I'll bet you within half an hour of putting it down, they've forgotten completely what was on the front page. So I think the era where newspapers were dominating the news agenda is actually over out there in the in the rest of the country although I agree I'm as obsessed as others with with you know what the newspapers look each day uh, and if you're french for example you are absolutely sick and tired of seeing french stereotypes on the front pages of the british tabloids <laughs> by the way if you're german it's even worse even even now uh, and in football or rugby it's even worse you know war is declared um, when a British and a, an English and a, and a German football team. Typical meet. snooty. <laughs> it's, you know, but you know, it's war again. It's far, it's far more serious than war. Um. And so, yeah, their their reputation is not great. And, And it is striking that there's not much foreign news coverage, actually, in most of our press. If I go to France and I read Le Monde, I agree Le Monde is an incredibly boring newspaper with very, very long articles and very few pictures. But it does have a lot of very serious coverage of international affairs, as does the New York Times, as do the German newspapers. And so I think I think the British newspapers pay much less attention, really, to what's happening abroad in any serious sense, apart from picking up the kind of stories of, you know, uh, what are the frogs up to again and putting that on the front page. Um, there's a tone of seriousness uh, in continental newspapers. There's also too much deference. And I think the French press are far too deferential towards their president and their ministers, far too unwilling to criticise them you know, and say the difficult thing to them. So at least I'll give it to our press that they're not deferential. Nobody could call them that. And that is, by and large, a good thing, I guess.
1: That is a good thing. I, I know what you mean about uh, that people not actually consuming newspapers the way they did, but I'm not sure I agree with you about them not consuming the stories. I mean, certainly I find now I've never read Uh, as much Telegraph and Daily Mail now as I ever did before in my life because it's pushed into my social media feeds all the time Mm. by people saying, I can't believe what they've done today. Look at this. Whereas before the invention of social media, I would just saunter past and go and pick up my Guardian because I'm a big wet liberal. And now we kind of, social media propagates this stuff around.
4: It does up to a point, but then if you if you then come across the paywall, uh, you can't actually see the article. So you can see the first two lines of it, and then you can't see any more, and that's always infuriating. Especially if you've written a letter to the Times or something, <laughs> and you don't you don't have a flipping uh, you know you, you you don't have a subscription to the Times. You can't see your own letter. So I, yeah, I think you see the headlines and you see the sort of strap lines, um, but you can't really even consume a lot of the media unless you've paid their subscription.
1: Yeah, but I think that's the goal, isn't it? Just consume the headline. <laughs> yeah. Nobody reads the article. Well, I guess this item means I'm never getting invited on BBC papers ever again to, uh, to review the press. Although Ian Dunt does, he's doing it all the time. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it is now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, TV shows or whatever else that have been giving our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Yasmin, what's uh, what's yours?
2: Well, I've been <clears throat> learning all sorts of things about Henry VIII's wives. Oh, yeah? <laughs> because I'm studying for uh, to get indefinite leave to remain in this country, which I should touch would be getting hopefully sometime this year I need to take the life in the UK test
1: I don't know anything about I'm going to be kicked out I don't know so
2: at the risk of sounding like an idiot because my colleagues have told me this a lot of times the way to kind of know the order is I think divorced, beheaded, died divorced, Mm. beheaded, died
3: I think okay. That's survived. Right. The last one survived. Oh, like, Divorce Beheaded
2: died. Divorce Beheaded survived. That's it. There you go. Well oh, Yasmin. Oh, <laughs> Back a, to
1: America this, with you, Yasmin. <laughs> this bodes
2: poorly. But yes, yeah, so I've been I've been reading from the Life in the UK test booklet. That's been my hobby.
1: I've so. heard of these these questions. I think they're completely wrong. I think they that we the nationality test and kind of fitness for the UK should be tested by things like my wife is American and I, I knew that she had fully integrated when I found her uh, in my mum's kitchen singing to the tune of Mouldy Old Doe, singing Aldi Brown Sauce. Now that is true integration into <laughs> British culture, isn't it? Nobody needs to know about the various wives of Henry VIII, but that shows that you really are part of this great nation. Uh, Here, how about you? What's been your diversion? My
3: diversion has been reading extensively about Crossrail. Uh, I'm extremely excited that it is opening. I'm going to... I've got a WhatsApp thread. I'm going to be there on opening night and I insist on calling it opening night. Mm. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, it's it's lovely. I've got... uh, I've got a sort of what what Modern Railways magazine have called a -a bookazine that they've made for uh, this thing. You can go on uh, Modern Railways and get involved with this. Uh, And uh, listen, I love it. And uh, I think that it is good to enjoy things entirely unironically and enthusiastically. And uh, listen, I like a train and I'm going to go on those trains and I'm going to be really, bloody happy about being on that train.
1: So we're recording on Monday night. You will be on the groovy train tomorrow on, hell yeah, uh, from Paddington to...
3: I will be uh, going from uh, Paddington at probably about six o'clock and exploring all of the uh, central London uh, stations in case anyone uh, wants to intercept and absolutely mark
1: Chapman me. We should do one of those things where they've got to say a special password and they want a five five or off years or something <laughs> like that. Yeah.
2: Are you going to call it the Elizabeth Lyme Line line? Uh, As it's I, now required, apparently.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I'm going to see what feels natural in my mouth <laughs> at the time. There you go. Uh, the Elizabeth Lyon Line line. Uh, Peter Ricketts, what's your escape route from uh, distressing political
4: matters? Well, trains again. But getting back to travel, being mm-hmm. able to go to places, getting on the Eurostar, and because I've had a whole series of sort of pent-up events that I was going to do that were put off because of the uh, COVID um, book presentations and talks and things. Trying to tell up foreigners what on earth's going on in our strange country. I've been to Strasbourg and Lille and Ghent and Paris and even in the UK to Salisbury. Um, I mean, not going to look at the spire because of uh, I was up to um, (laughs) other things. And it's wonderful to go back to see places. And I've been tweeting pictures of spires and towers and lovely old towns and getting a lot of people following me. There's a great joy just in going out and sitting in cafes in great European cities and watching life go past.
1: I've seen your Spire tweets. I did think, is he going to go to Salisbury? He went to (laughs) Salisbury. There you go. I (laughs) I will say I went to Salisbury for the
3: first time a few months ago and the Spire was so nice that I now fully believe those guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's a very... Yeah, 100%, it's reasonable. (laughs) Poor old Salisbury.
4: They've really come back strongly, Salisbury, (laughs) after that terrible thing and the Spire is wonderful,
1: inspiring. Inspiring. Very good. Well, mine, my escape route, is pop music again. Um, Regular listeners who listen to The Culture Bunker will know that we had the reformed band X Propaganda uh, as our guests a few weeks ago. Their album is out this week. is called The Heart is Strange. And to my delight, it's number two in the midweek charts. So if you like frosty, Germanic, electronic, German pop, this is the thing for you. Um, You know, The 80s are back in a big way. The Heart is Strange by Propaganda. It sounds absolutely wonderful. And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you for joining us to Yasmin Sahar.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you to Ahir Shara. Please, call me Aldi Brown Sauce. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to our special guest, Peter Ricketts. Thank you so much. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and, of course, the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, do support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a bit more about what you get. Ordinarily, we finish the show with a shout to our Patreon backers, but this week there is a shout to just one Patreon backer. It's for Cathal Coughlin of Cork, He was the singer and songwriter with the great Irish bands Micro Disney and Fatima Mansions, and more recently Telefish, one of the funniest, sharpest, cleverest lyricists around. He made this particular clueless English kid understand a little of what modern Irishness is all about. His songs like Birthday Girl, The Loyaliser, Past, and A Thousand Percent are all engraved on my brain, and Micro Disney's comeback show at the Barbican recently was absolutely incredible. When Carl signed up to back our podcast, it was like one of your heroes had decided that you were worth their support. Carl passed away this week, aged only 61. It is very sad and it's very unfair. I will miss him and so will a lot of other people. He deserved more time. So that is our shout for this week. Carl Cochlin, RIP. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next time.
3: The bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison for the Asmine Saran and Ali Brown Source. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers
4: were Jacob Archbold, Janusz Afraniewicz, and me, Alex Rees, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.